coming up, Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Sung with Subversity coming up. In recent years, Orange County has become widely known via television and other media portrayals as the OC, creating perceptions of a largely homogeneous, wealthy populace. In reality, it's nothing like that. The county has experienced significant change, and you can see that change the UCI Library's four exhibit, Immigrant Lives in the OC and Beyond, which depicts the lives of immigrants and those around them. That's at UC Irvine's Langson Library. It opens November 18, 2008, on Tuesday at 5.30, where there will be a reception. For more information, write to partners at uci.edu or call 949-824-5300. Uh, that was our uh, PSA for the library exhibit that um, this uh, show host is curating at UC Irvine Library. Uh, that will be uh, on the 18th at 5.30, the opening date. And the exhibit runs through, uh, through April, actually, next year. And it focuses on immigrant lives in the Orange County, in the OC. But the depiction is not what you would see... <laughs> on um, TV shows such as The O.C. or Laguna Beach or whatever on mainstream media. This is, um, I hope, I trust, a more realistic uh, portrayal. And today we're going to preview that exhibit by uh, playing a show we did uh, a couple years ago on May Day when we talked with uh, labor historian Gil Gonzalez a professor here at UC Irvine who's a, who has written um, about labor history in the county and beyond and focuses on a labor strike that, was, uh, that took place, a tumultuous uh, event uh, back in 1930s here in the county itself. And that, uh, that interview, uh, that information from his research, which he uh, published in a book, uh, is included in this exhibit at OC, at the OC, uh, at the Langston Library. Um, so we will be momentarily getting that... Uh, going to go to that interview um, that we will uh, be bringing you uh, from the um, from the um, from this interview with Professor Gilbert Gonzalez and we'll be doing that in a few seconds as we attempt to give some perspective to this strike, this history. May Day. Um, it's significant for many reasons in history. Um, do you know why this day was picked for this, uh, for this activity? 
Well, I can imagine. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, is that um, when we look around the world, particularly in Latin America, May Day is a day for workers to uh, have parades and to celebrate um, Labor Day. Here we have it in September. <laughs> but they celebrate it uh, as it should have been celebrated, celebrating the Haymarket Square uh, massacre of uh, in the late 19th century. So I, I believe the, that it had a lot to do with um, a, uh, a, a traditional um, a day for workers to uh, um, honor themselves and uh, honor workers. Uh, and so it was brought here into the United States. And so this is a kind of measure of the overwhelming migration that has occurred over the past 20 years, 25 years to the United States from Mexico and now Central America and Latin America. Uh, this is uh, very much um, a reflection of the uh, overwhelming numbers of immigrants, both legal and undocumented, who have come um, particularly since the era of free trade. And um, it was very evident to me, and when Droll and I were writing our book, um, A Century of Chicano History, that um, the older kind of um, uh, protest movement that we sort of associate with the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. was being um, sort of becoming... Um, uh, no longer applicable in, in, in because of the numbers of immigrants today. So that what we do or what we are seeing is the politics of the immigrant community. Whereas in the 60s and 70s, in my era of activity, yeah, yeah. Uh, what we saw was the activities of the second, third generation. And um, so that's what I think has a lot to do with this: is the numbers of immigrants who have come in and have taken the um, uh, the driver's seat in terms of the of the politics with from the Latino community, which is really the politics of the immigrant community. Um, and we can compare that to the 60s, which is really the politics of the second, third generation. And I can see it on campus, too, so that uh, um, students back in the early 70s, when I first started here, few of them spoke Spanish. Mm -hmm. Today, they all speak Spanish. Mm. And that's an example we're talking about. Many of them are immigrants. Right, right. Um, and I've even had students who are, for example, undocumented. Right. And, and students who are documented themselves, immigrants themselves. So that's a whole different kind of population, even though they're all Latinos, all Chicanos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's it's um, a, a community which is now... Uh, to a large degree, comprised of immigrants. And when I started uh, graduate school, the the immigrant population comp comprised only about 17 percent mm. of the Chicano okay. uh, yeah. population. Today, it's 50 percent and climbing. Oh yeah, yeah. So I think this is uh, just a reflection of the politics um, reflecting the immigrant um, uh, numbers. Today. There's also a split between the called mainstream Mexican-American establishment, I suppose, huh? and the more newer immigrants and the more grassroots kind of thing. Do you think? Do you see it that way? Well, um, like I, I talked to some one of the former UCI employee who's Latino, and he was saying, "Why don't Why don't people wait in line? Why do they jump the you know queue? I guess you know uh, that kind of stuff." Well, I I. Um 
I, I look at the certain kinds of certain organizations such as the right. National Council of La Raza or League of United Latin American Citizens, um, Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, which are really traditional mainline right. yeah. uh, organizations, and they've come out very much in support right, sure. of the main objectives of these uh, marches. And the main objectives of the marches um, are, I think, um, fairly much uh, what, I w what I would say um, in tune with the general community, mm -hmm. with, with the mainstream community as well. Um, building the wall, I don't think anybody... I don't think large numbers of the Latino yeah. community, second or third generation, think highly of that. And that's one of the big issues. Right, right. Uh, the Sensenbrenner bill, the protection or uh, helping um, undocumented immigrants, for example. Mahoney comes out in favor of that. Yeah. And the Catholic Church right, right. generally is supportive of that. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that uh, while there are some in the Latino community who say, stand in line, yeah. wait to get your papers, don't cross over illegally, and uh -huh. so on. I would say that the, the majority are pretty much uh, in tune with, with the marchers. And it's actually not that radical, even that's what uh, George Bush is pushing for, right, in some ways, um, some part of it. No, actually, the um, it's hard to say exactly where the... Um, the politics of these demonstrations, mm. um, where they begin and end. Uh, we know that, for example, they're against the Sensenbrenner Bill. 4437 right. is uh, one uh, is, is being t uh, aimed at. But on the other hand, what about the guest worker program right. and legalization? Probably legalization is another um, uh, demand. Legalize those people who've been here and are working and sure. so on and so forth. But on the other hand, the guest worker program is not clearly defined, I don't think. And also what is not being talked about is the, are the causes of Mexican mm -hmm. migration. Um, that's sort of been left out. And I mentioned this once before here at a demonstration on campus that the, uh, the discussion on um, uh, immigration reform is pretty well controlled by Washington so that the the demonstrations have been a response to rather than a a concrete set of proposals mm. that these demonstrators demand should be uh, um, put into or implemented um, so what is being discussed is what is being proposed mm -hmm. in other words immigration reform immigration reform is being proposed uh, Sensenbrenner on the one hand um, uh, McCain, Kennedy, uh, Cornyn, who knows how many mm. other people are st are proposing things. And so the discussion is s circulates around that. Yeah. And um, what I think needs to be done is to have a set of proposals that come from, that are, that originate from within the community. Right, right. Um, and I think the very first thing that needs to be done is to discuss why this migration? And I, I, I'm agree in, in agreement with um, uh, <coughs> Kitty Calavita mm. uh, in social ecology, who said there's really no way of creating a an, an effective immigration reform as long as Mexico is an underdeveloped country. 
Now, the question is, why is Mexico an underdeveloped country? Why are people coming to the United States in such huge numbers? Why are they risking their lives? And that has not really been put on the um, put forward for discussion uh, sig- signif- in, 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 uh, significantly enough. Yeah. Um, and another thing that needs to be discussed is U.S. economic relations, particularly the free trade agreement between the two countries, which is devastating to Mexico and who, which has led to this migration. So um, I think what needs to be done is rather than dealing with what McCain puts out or what uh, Kennedy puts out, ag jobs or uh, legalization, I think we have to uh, move the discussion forward and discuss the causes of this migration because there will be no immigration reform, really. There'll, this migration will continue on to the future. Um, there will be a stopgap measure. N- not even that. Not even that. Right <laughs> no, see, um, Mexican migration has been principally a migration of labor. Mm. And the um, immigration legislation that deals with Mexican migration, that is immigration legislation in the United States, deals with that migration as a migration of labor. Um, it... Um, is modified um, and adjusted to that key characteristic. If you look over the course of the 20th century, um, legislation regarding Mexican migration has adjusted to that fact that it is a migration of labor. And this, um, this legislation has been geared to um, making sure that this labor is accessed Mm -hmm. in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So what we have is um, um, eras when there's a virtual open border, uh, eras where you have contract labor programs, Mm -hmm. um, or the Immigration Immigration Act of 1924, National Quotas Act, which um, virtually excluded any quota on Mexican migration. And that's to ensure that Mexican migration will be readily uh, accessed and utilized and exploited. Um, So what we are seeing is a continuation of that convention within uh, immigration law. It's not reform. (laughs) It's it's updating uh, how Mexican labor will be utilized. Mexican labor in Mexico right now, how it will be utilized in the future in the United States. To serve uh, business interests? Agriculture, Uh uh, the service industry, uh, hotels, Uh uh, and so on. In fact, there's a a consortium of employers of immigrant labor um, that uh, uh, lobbied in 1999 uh, for a a guest worker program, and they're one of the... uh, uh, key um, um, organizations which have been pushing mm-hmm. for a guest worker program, and they represent um, hotels, resorts, um, a, a whole series of uh, 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 businesses and enterprises which hire uh, immigrant labor, and they would like to see a guest worker program. And so we're not going to see reform. Mm-hmm. What we're going to see is a 
uh, legislation that was going to deal with this overwhelming numbers of undocumented people coming into the United States and channeling them uh, into uh, a guest worker program so that you will have a kind of um, revolving uh, door system mm-hmm. where they come in and leave, come in and leave. Um, whether it, it's going to work is another question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> We're talking with uh, Professor Raul Fernandez, and this is uh, not Raul. Sorry, <laughs> Raul. I've, I I brought up his name because you brought it up, and I was trying yeah. to say you were mentioning Raul. And this is Gil Gonzalez. Sorry, <laughs> and um, they've been co-authors uh, on some works. And um, uh, this is KCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KCI. Yeah, let's delve into the, um, Professor Gonzalez, uh, let's delve into the, uh, the background of, uh, of the history of this migration uh, and the, the impact of American capital in Mexico. Um, you've written many books on this topic, and you have a new one just coming out, just coming out this year, uh, has come out, uh, Guest Workers or Colonized Labor, Mexican li- uh, Labor Migration to the United States. Yes. Um, well, in that particular book, um, I look at the uh, old guest worker program, the, the what is considered the, the classical guest worker program, the Bracero program, um, which operated from 1942 to 1964, uh, in which hundreds and thousands of um, males were men were mm-hmm. uh, imported to the United States to work on temporary contracts, primarily in agriculture. Um, and uh, we spoke earlier, and uh, you mentioned that someone once compared it to a slave system. And in fact, uh, a number of people, including Ernesto Galarza, mm. uh, saw this as a uh, a virtual slave system, in which um, oh, we can go into that. I mean, there's a lot of aspects to it. Um, Did people mostly come to California at the time? Or? Uh, they came primarily to Texas yes. and California, mm-hmm. uh, but they also went into Arkansas, um, Michigan, uh, Oregon, mm-hmm. Washington, uh, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, but it was primarily California and uh, Texas who got the bulk of of these workers. And one number that has been put out as the uh, the numbers of work men who were brought into the United States uh, is four hundred and fifty thousand hmm. over those twenty two over that twenty two year period um, it was supposedly uh, established um, well, it was established in nineteen forty two but it was supposedly established to uh, um, supply uh, a, a required number of laborers because the war was pulling people into the mm-hmm. uh, services and, and defense industry and so on, so there was a shortage of labor. That's a conventional explanation. Which war? Uh, Second World oh. War. <laughs> and uh, when I looked into it, uh, I found that one of the key lobbyists for the Bracero program in 1941 and 42 was um, Charles Teague. Charles Teague was president of the Southern California Fruit Growers Exchange, which is Sunkist. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Sunkist was having big problems with their labor supply, which is primarily Mexican labor supply, who had learned the art of organizing and striking. So uh-huh. in 1936, um, here in Orange County, it was the very first 
mm -hmm. uh, strike in the citrus industry, which lasted three weeks, and um, which was a very violent affair in which hundreds of workers were arrested. Uh, vigilante groups were operating. The Santa Ana Register was calling for... Uh, uh, shoot to kill. Shoot to kill, said. yeah. The headline was shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. And um, that strike in 19, of 1936 was followed by another strike in 1941 in Ventura County in which Teague's Ranch, Leffingwell Ranch, mm. which was a thousand-acre ranch which had a company town uh, workers living on the, on the ranch, they went out on strike in 41, and it was thousands of workers uh, went out on strike, and they were evicted from their camps and so on. And those, that's, those two strikes, plus the strikes that occurred throughout the 30s uh, in cotton, in the San Joaquin Valley, in agriculture, in L.A. County, as well as in the Imperial Valley, 33, 34, and then there's a cotton strike in 38, um, agricultural labor becomes very unreliable, undependable. And uh, the Bracero program, I believe, was instituted to a large extent uh, to uh, replace the existing Mexican labor supply and move them out. In fact, that's what happened in Orange County. Uh, the um, grower associations, there were about 45 packing houses, and they had their own labor supply and so on. Uh, there were about 20, 25,000 Mexican citizens or Mexicans uh, as forming part of the population here in Orange County at that time. Um, they were virtually moved out of the labor supply, and the, the uh, 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 citrus grower associations instructed their foremen not to hire from the local labor supply to employ only braceros, so that even when there were available Mexican workers for the citrus industry here, um, they would not be hired. And that's an example of what I'm talking about. The Bracero program was a means of replacing an mm -hmm. organized and a politicized labor supply. Who, who organized them? Was, was it a union or was it an independent, yeah, they, was it independent union? Or um, so there were, well, actually, there were um, a number of uh, organizers. There were some people from the AFL mm. uh, who were active, but there were also members from the um, old Communist Party organization. Mm. What were they called? Um, Cannery and Agricultural Workers mm -hmm. Industrial Union. Mm -hmm. So they were they were active uh, at the time. Um, there were a number of radicals that were uh, from the Mexican community who were participating in the uh, Communist Party at the time. Sure. So, um, but the, the workers themselves were very available. You know, available made themselves available mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. to uh, labor organizing. So because of that, the Veracero program. Um, it was used, utilized as a means of replacing the existing labor supply. What, what and in fact, that's exactly what happened across the board. It wiped out the yeah. organized yeah. workers. Yeah. So, I mean, like people are talking about, well, undocumented today are taking, work, uh, are taking uh, jobs away from the black community. But actually, guest workers uh, in the past took jobs away from the Mexican community, the white community, the black community as well. And these were people that were living here already? Oh, almost. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the domestic labor supply, people who, you know, were living in settled uh, communities uh -huh. and had been working maybe in citrus for decades and found themselves now pushed out um, because of, and I know a, a, a number of um, 
grower associations started to talk about the existing, the domestic labor supply is unreliable now. We don't want them anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But tw uh, 10 years or 15, 20 years earlier, they were saying, this is wonder these workers are wonderful. We love them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, it's, it's a matter of uh, when people learn how to organize and become independent and start putting down their own demands, um, their own um, political objectives uh, and economic objectives, then they become unreliable. Did you tie, like, the beginnings of United Farm Workers to this legacy or not? To the farmer, to the to bracero? The, or to the, yeah, or to the organizing earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, one of the key um, leaders in uh, organizing agricultural labor was Ernesto Galarza, mm -hmm. um, who during the bracero program attempted to organize um, farm workers. And what he found was that it was impossible. It was very, very difficult because the braceros um, were brought in as strike breakers virtually oh. in places like the Imperial Valley. Uh -huh. um, and so that he then became active in uh, opposing yeah. the bracero program uh -huh. Uh -huh. because of, for a number of reasons, one, what it was doing to Mexican workers themselves, but what it was doing to domestic labor as well. And he and others were very successful in pointing out how the Bracero program was really um, a, a, an exploitative system. And he, he looked at the Bracero and he defined the Bracero as, um, as something of a ward to a patron, mm -hmm. sort of like this medieval relationship, uh -huh. not of a of of a free wage labor worker with an employer, but as someone who was subjected to the um, the domination of another individual, the feudal system. Yeah, yeah, a ward to a patron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so he saw that as uh, injurious to the Mexican workers brought in, as well as to those workers who were here already. And so, in the and there were a number of others who were also active in opposing it. The Catholic Church, for example, was, huh. was also in opposition. And so when it was ended in 64, it opened the door to Cesar Chavez to, um, mm. uh, to organize uh, agricultural workers. How did Filipino workers get into the picture? They, they were also uh, involved in the farm work. Right. And were they, um, were they recruited specifically for it, or were they already here, or what? Um, well, First of all, it was yeah. a colony. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> it, it was a colony. And um, how they were brought in, I'm not, I'm not exactly clear, but um, my assumption is that they were recruited uh, in the same way that Mexican labor was recruited. Huh. You know, there's a whole history behind the recruitment of Mexican labor, and it's still going on today. But if you go back to um, the early 20th century, late 19th century, Mexican labor was being recruited in Mexico and brought to the United States. Uh, so recruiters um, were, uh, I'm sure, active um, in that they brought them also to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there were recruiters active in, the Pu in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. re bringing them to, uh, I know, these um, uh, Salt River Valley in, in uh, Arizona. 
So um, they were most probably recruited, and they became known as the boys, <laughs> the, the Filipino workers, the boys. They were mm -hmm. known as the boys. Um, and um, uh, they replaced uh, the Mexican labor, and particularly the Filipinos replaced the Japanese. Mm. And the Japanese re had replaced the um, the Chinese. So what we have is a series in, in agriculture, particularly in agriculture, a series of um, uh, waves of labor that replaces the previous labor supply. So the Chinese were then excluded. And then the Japanese are excluded because they begin to form associations. Oh. Um, and then the Filipinos are brought in, but there's not enough, so they bring in Mexicans as well. Mm. Um, and um, then the Mexican labor that's here, uh, particularly in, in the citrus industry, is then replaced by bracero labor. And then the braceros are going to be replaced by uh, documented immigrants as well as undocumented immigrants. Um, and um, now we'll probably see them being replaced by guest workers. And maybe um, the existing undocumented labor supply will become a portion of the guest worker program. So they will be incorporated. I guess that's what Bush is talking about, mm. incorporating the existing undocumented labor supply into a guest worker program. Uh, if they start bringing in guest workers from Mexico, then they will probably replace um, an existing labor supply. And it's a repeat of um, a history of um, replacement of existing labor supply. Is it a reaction to organizing uh, now or not? Um, I, I think that this is primarily a means of controlling um, the undocumented migration, which has become so overwhelming. And I think that's what this guest worker program or these discussions are all about. Um, rather than dealing with the cause mm -hmm. of this migration, mm -hmm. deal with um, the symptoms of um, what is occurring in Mexico. People come... So the Mexican migration is being dealt with solely north of the border rather than looking at it, <clears throat> um, looking at the roots of this migration. And uh, uh, in order to understand this migration, in order to explain it, um, uh, we have to look at the actions of American capital in Mexico. And I'm, I'm, I recall the the work of uh, Ernesto Galarza. Uh, in 1949, he wrote a piece in uh, Common Ground, 1949. Uh, it was, the article was titled A Program for Action. And he had this to say, and I have this quote right in front of me, but it's very, very interesting. I think it has to be applied. He said he, the migrant, is forced to seek better conditions north of the border by the slow but relentless pressure of the United States agricultural, financial, and oil corporate interests on the entire economic and social evolution of the Mexican nation. And he said, and he goes on to say that to ignore this basic premise is to overlook the roots of the problem. problem. So the roots of Mexican migration can't be explained simply by looking at uh, what's happening in Mexico and, and, and separate Mexico from 
the actions of U.S. economic policy uh, across the border. And um, we have to do that today to continue to look at uh, th this migration and um, the uh, free trade agreement is at the root of this massive migration. Uh, free trade in general mm -hmm. is uprooting people throughout Mexico, sending them on a migratory trail within Mexico. And this migratory trail goes northward to um, to the assembly plants that are, there's about 3,000 assembly plants and about 80% of them are on the northern border. 1,000 of them are just here in the Tijuana, Ensenada area. Mm -hmm. And people move north because that's where the jobs are. And if there are no jobs, they come across the United States. I mean, um, I once went down to, I walked across to Tijuana and uh, with John O and uh, he's a labor uh, activist yeah. and we took a, actually we took a cab to one of these uh, factories and uh, what, what do we call it, uh, uh, Hyundai or Coca-Cola or whatever had, mm -hmm. had plants over there I think and they would patrol with uh, people with guns they were like, was fenced in and then there was housing on the hills I think they, they built some yeah. housing and so it's this huge area. Yeah, well Today, Mexico is, is, is a virtual economic colony of the United States. 40% um, of, um, of the employed peoples of Mexico work for an American concern in mm. Mexico. In That's 40%. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Um, uh, the largest retailer in Mexico is, is Walmart. In fact, Walmart is the largest employer, 170,000 workers. Delphi is the next largest employer in Mexico with 70,000 workers. What does Delphi do? Uh, it, yeah. Automobile parts. Oh, right, right, yeah. Um, the largest industrial employer are the assembly plants, most of them located along the northern border, which pay poverty wages. And so people are living in shack towns, um, uh, communities without sewage and, and, and like that. Um, but Mexico is, is virtually an economic colony. Uh, Forty percent of the of employment um, is um, generated by American concerns there, uh, but not only that. The um, when we're talking about fr uh, migration, we have to look at what free trade what free trade has done, what the North American Free Trade Agreement signed in 1994 has done to Mexico. Um, uh, just today, I was or was it yesterday? I was reading a, an article in the commentary in the Orange County Register, and it. It, it uh, attempts to explain migration. Mm. And, of course, it just uh, says um, Mexico can't develop itself. It doesn't have the will. It doesn't have uh, the cultural uh, attributes that is, that, uh, is required to um, lead Mexico into uh, modern modernization. Uh, it's in the commentary section, the very first page, some, something like that. And... Um, mm. What they don't recognize is that the North American Free Trade Agreement um, has opened the doors to American agricultural products, not just agricultural products, livestock, for example, as well, meat products. Um, for ex um, Mexico at one time um, was... Um, uh, Exported, right? Well, it, it, it produced its own uh, uh, food supply. Corn, beans, rice, soya, uh, dairy products, chicken. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, it sustained itself. In fact, one of the fundamentals of every nation state is its ability to feed itself. An economy 
uh, is is primarily agricultural to feed yeah. to feed the peoples. Um, that's true of every nation state. Uh, what Mexico lost to the free trade agreement was its ability to feed itself in that it opened the free trade agreement demanded from Mexico mm -hmm. that it opened its doors to the import of American goods, particularly, I mean, corn, for example. At one time, Mexico produced all of its own corn supply. Now, the overwhelming, I think, is 70% of its corn supply comes from the United States. Mm. Um, dairy products, uh, beef, chicken, soy, rice. Uh, are now uh, uh, imported from the United States. Now, what that is doing is not making life better for the vast majority of Mexicans. What it's doing is it's ruining those agriculturalists, those ranchers um, who lived on um, producing goods for the marketplace. They were, most of them were small ranchers, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, and it's, but some were medium-sized as well. Uh -huh. Um, people who, who grew um, uh, dairy products, for example, are going out of business. Hmm. They're going bankrupt. And um, the bankruptcy rate uh, at the countryside is huge. Uh, every day about 600 people, according to studies by Mexican sociologists, every day 600 people leave the countryside. They migrate. Uh, and most of them migrate northward because that's where jobs are available. During the era of the governorship of um, Vicente Fox, mm. when he was governor of the state of Guanajuato, uh, whatever it was, 10 years, I don't know, I think it's six years, maybe, maybe less, 20% of the population of the rural countryside left their villages. And what we're seeing across Mexico is the desertion of villages on a, on a widespread scale. Do you think in Pedepe, though, in the urban areas now? Well, uh, the unemployment rate in Mexico mm. right now is probably around 40%. Wow. Uh, but if you count the people who are selling apples on a corner oh, or, yeah. or cleaning your, your windshield uh, at a stop sign, um, the, um, uh, the poverty rate in Mexico, according to one study, the poverty rate is 73%. Wow. Now, the government study is 40%. <laughs> So, but it's probably at least one half of the right. population live under the level of poverty by the standards of Mexico. Uh, we know that in Tijuana, which is um, uh, has uh, hundreds of assembly plants located there, right. hiring thousands of people. I think there's 250,000 people working in assembly plants in the area. One half the population live in poverty one half of the population by the standards of Mexico. Mm. And so the free trade agreement has a great deal to do with this migration within Mexico, people being uprooted on a massive scale, sent on a migratory trail, which comes northward because that's where the assembly plants are and then crosses into the United States. Now, this is not anything new. <laughs> In the work that Raul and I mm. uh, wrote, uh, Century of Chicano History, we looked at the late 19th and early 20th century, and what we found was that um, the actions of American capital, in the same way that Ernesto Galarza pointed out, the actions of American capital, particularly the railroads, which were constructed by American concerns, uprooted people on a massive scale in the late 19th century. Something like 300,000 people, uh, peasants, were uprooted and sent on a migratory trail. 
and they were hired by American oil companies, American railroads, American mining companies, and they were pulled northward. And there was a massive redistribution of the Mexican population northward. And so we, what we see then is, a, is the development of a landless population mm -hmm. um, working for American corporations. This is the late 19th and early 20th century, a northward migration caused by the actions of American capital. And uh, we see a repeat of that today with the free trade agreement is uprooting people <clears throat> on a massive scale and sending them on a migratory trail, which ends up in places like Santana here, Santa Ana, mm -hmm. or, or Long Beach, or, or East Los Angeles, and so on. So that we cannot just look at this migration and say, well, um, it's what happens when people cross the border. No. Migration begins in the villages in Mexico, in the small communities, in the towns and cities. It begins there, and it ends here. Um, and as, as long as this immigration reform is merely looking at people after they cross the border, then we're not going to do anything about it. <laughs> so uh, the, the causes of this migration, we have to look at what uh, Ernesto Galarza said. You have to look at the, the actions of American capital in Mexico. Uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Gil Gonzalez here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KCI.org on the web. Um, uh, there was a speaker that was uh, for globalization, uh, Jagdish Bhagwadi, uh, uh -huh. uh, who's a professor of economics and law at Columbia. And when he spoke on campus, there were protests. Uh, he was, his point was that it's, globalization can be good for you or is good for you. I'd like to know for whom. <laughs> for Cargill, uh, Archer, Daniels, Mitchell. Uh, um, it's uh, in Mexico... Uh, it hasn't benefited the vast majority of the population. When we, when we, when we know that s such a l huge number of people are living under the poverty line, and s studies have been carried out, um, the, uh, especially in indigenous communities mm -hmm. of Mexico, which show that the conditions in these places are as bad as the conditions existing in the worst areas of Africa, mm -hmm. where malnutrition is common where diseases that uh, would normally not appear are common. Um, and we're seeing this c these conditions, which uh, appear in the 90s in Mexico, appearing now through Central America. There was just an article in, in the L.A. Times um, a couple of weeks ago uh, discussing rice farmers in Honduras who are going broke because they can't compete against American rice, which is being dumped mm. uh, because of a free trade agreement. Uh, and so what we're going to be seeing is a massive migration from all of Latin America. And the attempts to control this migration <laughs> through this immigration reform is not going to succeed. It cannot succeed. So the United States wants its cake and wants to eat it at the same time. It wants to have free trade. Uh, but this free trade at the same time is uprooting peoples on a massive scale and sending them on a migratory trail, which ends up in the U.S., and so what we're seeing now is migration from Central America going through Mexico, right, <laughs> and coming yeah. to the United States. And we're seeing, again, uh, a replication of what uh, is occurring in Mexico, the, des the desertion of villages, mm -hmm. where and where families are now uprooting. And we're seeing uh, increasing numbers of women who are migrating. Um, 
because it, whereas before perhaps it was the man right mm -hmm. <laughs> now it's women migrating on their own mm. um, and from Central America through Mexico and it's a very 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 difficult situation and now what we're seeing is uh, uh, a business um, that is risen because of the massive numbers of people and because of Operation Gatekeeper and so on and so forth of uh, smugglers, mm -hmm. coyotes. Mm -hmm. Now the smugglers um, are considered to be criminals and crooks and, and bad people, right? <laughs> but what they're bringing to the United States are the very same people who are working as nannies here in Newport Beach or working uh, as as busboys in uh, various restaurants, upscale restaurants, and so on. Um, they they bring people to the border, and what we see then is that they're being recruited from the border. Now, give you an example of who's recruiting these people who are smuggled into the United States um, uh, are the uh, uh, contractors working for uh, um, is it K uh, Halliburton mm. was hired to do some of the reconstruction in right. New Orleans, right? Oh, New Orleans, yeah. Yeah. Well, they went and, and uh, contracted with a whole series of small concerns to clean up bases and do all sorts of things. Well, where were they recruiting from? Wow. At the border. They're recruiting undocumented workers. In fact, there's an article by Robert Roberto Lovato mm. uh, that I'm, I'm not sure exactly where it appeared. I have that article. But he looks at these... Um, uh, contractors. Now what we see then is a process of migration of labor being brought by coyotes to the border or to Santa Ana, mm. let's say. Mm. And then they are put onto another uh, recruiting trail, <laughs> yeah. a recruiting process. Uh, and I'm giving you one example of this uh, in terms of the recruiters that have uh, gone to the border to, to bring uh, workers to New Orleans. Um, we find the same thing with um, the chicken pr Tyson mm. uh, was doing the same thing, going to the border and, and recruiting workers and taking them into their Arkansas chicken processing plants. Um, so uh, what we are seeing then is a single migratory process, right? People removed from their communities through the actions of U.S. economic policy and the actions of American uh, enterprises opening the doors to, to their products in Mexico. And the actions are the uprootings of people. They're coming to the border, and they're continuing on until they find jobs in the United States. What immigration reform does is it separates that process. It only looks at One the five. process from the border northward. Mm -hmm. But it's, that's only half of it. <laughs> The other half is ignored, and as long as that other half is ignored, as Galarza said, then you will never really have an immigration reform. You will, what you will have is a series of renewals of um, attempts to control this migration of labor to the United States. So people like uh, the... Um, the What do you call them? The Minutemen? What do they call Yeah. Uh, Gilchrist, all these people... Uh, against uh immigration immigrants yeah. uh do you think do, do you think they are correct in the sense that they see like uh they're anti corporations also right because i know john Rose interviewed uh, some of these people and he f he finds that they are actually kind of they kind of a besieged uh population in a sense 
that they see uh, forces out out of their control, and they so the the way they react is they say no, we don't want these people here. It reminds me in a way. It reminds me of um, how the Chinese were dealt with um, that in the late 19th century, uh, in that um, some organizations of, of uh, craftsmen and so on saw the Chinese, and, and actu- uh, small agriculturalists, saw the Chinese as the supply of labor that the large growers were utilizing and um, making it impossible for these smaller mm-hmm. ranchers and so on to succeed. And so they thought, well, if you get rid of the Chinese, then there's a level playing field. Mm. Um, and so the, the, rather than looking at this disproportional size of capital, the distribution of capital, um, they, uh, rather than looking at the large growers as their uh, competitors, they looked at the Chinese as really the cause of their problem. If we got rid of them, mm-hmm. then there's a level playing field. I get the idea sometimes that they that these are, are people who who are small um, business people, uh, I'm not sure, um, who see their middle-class standard of living being eroded, because mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. uh, pensions are being done away with, All health right. care yeah. is on. Yeah, uh, sure. The educational system is, is not in doing all that well. A privatization is not working in the interest of middle-class people, and um, they—it it appears to me that what they see is um, the undocumented, who are a boon for agriculture, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the surface industry and the construction industry. I mean, 37% of employees in the construction mm-hmm. industry are immigrants, mm-hmm. and we could probably, you know, speculate that probably a good portion of those are undocumented. But they see um, their own place in the economy as eroding. But that's part of free trade. That's the neoliberal model. It's mm-hmm. privatization across the board. Um, it's uh, um, uh, a system where uh, the um, uh, schooling system is no longer what it was when I was a kid. You know, sure. you went to school. Nowadays, you pay uh, uh, for every. For, I mean, you're really you're really uh, putting out a lot of money for pu- even for public education now, and privatization model. Um, so I I I, I sp- am speculating that um, this is uh, in, to some degree a um, uh, a reaction. Uh, it's misdirected a reaction to what neoliberalism is doing to people. Migration, however, is caused by the actions of American capital. And they don't want to deal with that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's too big a problem. It's much easier than just to deal with the symptom of the problem, which is migrants coming to the United States. Uh, And as well as to ignore um, how significant and important immigrants have been, particularly undocumented immigrants, to the American economy. And they don't realize that while they claim that these immigrants um, are Latinizing the United States, they're really integrated into the American economy. They are integral to the American economy. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the, the, the um, 
the irony in that right. here we have a day without Mexicans, mm -hmm. but um, and now they're saying, "Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that now. That's that's mm -hmm. a that's that's going too far." Um, see, they're un-American and so on. Mm. But what they, but they, but people like Gilchrist would say, "Fine, get rid of all of them." Um, but they don't want to. They would. They don't want all of them to do it on their own. <laughs> Were they to do it on their own, then uh, see, they're they're they're, <laughs> they're trying to harm us. They're trying to harm us. How about this idea of uh, some people are complaining about um, raising or uh, raising of Mexican flags? Yeah. Um, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, uh, in, in New York City, there was a, a big demonstration uh, in favor of immigration reform, and um, there were flags from around the world. <laughs> and I, I would prefer that. Yeah, I would right. prefer that. I think this is a, a, a nation of many peoples, and um, I have no problems with that at all. Uh, um, I think as anarchists, I would prefer no flags. <laughs> well, uh, or the symbols of of a people. Yeah, uh, and I don't, people, uh, yeah, or the flags. or the language of the people. Right. Um, no, I see. I, I don't have any problem with with the nation, mm -hmm. because Mexico to me is has lost its sovereignty. It's no longer a sovereign nation. So the flag to you doesn't represent the state necessarily. No, it represents the independence of Mexico, ah, there, okay. and it's a reality that doesn't exist anymore. When I when I mentioned the free trade agreement and the uh, loss of the ability of Mexico to feed itself, that is a loss of a very fundamental feature of a nation state, mm -hmm. the ability to feed itself. Now Mexico um, cannot feed itself, um, and it's lost that element of its sovereignty, so that um, I... I think we have to talk about how Mexico has become a, an economic colony of the United States. Mm. And also, we also have to bring the word imperialism out. <laughs> yeah, really. And rather than have it uh, tucked away conveniently so that we can talk about it as perhaps a, an, an occasional aberration that American foreign policy has engaged in, <laughs> uh, but it's a policy which has been in place for a century now. And it is that policy in relation to Mexico which has resulted in this continual migration of people to the United States. Um, it's, it's never more it hasn't been any clearer than today uh, with the free trade agreement in that um, Mexico has lost its uh, national sovereignty. Um, so, um, and, and I think uh, Ernesto Galarza would agree with me on that. And we, I, I think he has to, his, his, his work has to be listened to very, very carefully um, and, and reviewed. What are some of his uh, books? Well, he wrote his work uh, on the Bracero program. He wrote several on the Bracero program. And uh, they, are, they are indictments of... Uh, of the way Mexican labor has been treated. Now, one of the things that Galarza pointed out uh, uh, in a talk given to uh, Chicanos in the late 60s, early 70s, I remember in San Diego, he said Mexico is a huge labor pool, and which is dipped into uh, whenever necessary by American capital. One of the things that he didn't do 
and that um, I try to do in my book on guest workers or colonized labor, mm-hmm. um, which has a little story. Do we have time for a little story? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, a few minutes. I gave a, a talk at the Green Party here in Orange County. Uh, they asked me to give a talk on uh, Mexican migration, so I gave my talk. And I basically summarized uh, over the course of a half hour, 45 minutes or so, uh, what Raul and I wrote about uh, as the economic causes of Mexican migration to the U.S. We essentially employed the Galarza model, uh, and we went and added our own work on there. And we looked at how the actions of American capital uprooted people on a massive scale, mm-hmm. and that migration continues to the United States, not push-pull. Right, mm-hmm. but a single migratory flow. Mm. And I gave this talk, and at the end of the talk, um, questions and answers, time to go home. And I'm walking to my car, and this fellow who was in the audience calls me, and he says, um, you know, I, I, your talk that you gave, um, it reminded me very much of what occurred in India, mm. in his native India. And um, he said it, it just was very similar. And I thought, well, I asked him for some books that I could read, and I didn't have any. But anyway, I started to study the contract labor program that the British used Mm -hmm. in colonial India. And then I was, um, uh, it was suggested that I looked at Algeria. They had another contract labor program, and I compared the Bracero program, Mm. U.S. guest worker program, to the British contract labor program during the colonial era and the French uh, contract labor program with Algeria during the colonial era, and the parallels were striking. The most, the most uh, striking parallel was the actions of British and French imperialist policies on landowning systems in uh, their countries. Massive uprootings of people and sending them on a migratory trail within the colony. Mm. The very same thing happens in Mexico because of the actions, not of Mexican capital or Mexican economic policies or decisions, because of the actions of American capital. That's the key fundamental that I found in all of these. And that's why I think that uh, Mexico is a, a virtual colony of the United States. So you, so these reforms aren't going to solve anything? No. No. The, the reform is doing away with free trade. <laughs> that's, that'll, that's the beginning of a reform. Um, that will slow down migration. Um, the creation of an independent Mexico uh, that is not subjected to the economic power of the United States. I guess the lesson from your talk is that we uh, forget history at our peril. <laughs> um, I think... We have to read history. Well, sometimes we don't forget. We haven't yet acknowledged a a very fundamental characteristic of the United States, that it is an imperialist power. And we don't just forget it. We we ignore it. We dismiss it. Because we're in the belly of the beast. We are. are, This is an... We are the inheritors of the British Empire, and we've done... I mean... People like Henry Kissinger, Charles Krauthammer, William Rusher, a whole series of neoconservative pundits have come out to declare that the United States is now an imperialist power that is doing good around the world. And um, what uh, the average American has not done is to appreciate that. 